This is Jack Spierko, another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 19th, 2020. This is episode 2685 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday, so it's time for an expert counsel Q&A show. It is also the last show until I come back. That's right, I'm going on vacation. I'm leaving you with a 13-part rewind series designed to help you get what you want. My assignment for you over the weekend is get yourself mentally prepared to do some things you don't want to do so you can have what you want in your life. That's part one of the assignment. Part two, decide right now how you're going to make lists. I'm going to have you making lists and some notes. You're not going to have to sit down and listen to the show like you're in school and take notes while I talk. You don't have to do that. But you are going to have, at the end of each episode, something to do. And in many instances, you're going to need to figure some stuff out and make some lists and make some notes and make some updates. Decide whether you want a notebook, whatever. I don't want you to have the damn toolbox fallacy and go, I wish I could do this, but I don't have a thing to write on, so I can't do this, so just to get out of it. All right, so have something, whether you're going to do your, you're going to use an app or a notes app or something like that, or your computer and a document, or whether you're going to get an old school notebook, which probably is best for this, and a pen, have that available, and please do the work. I put a ton into this. My going away this time, is stressful because of how long, but it was also stressful because of how much I had to get done. And I made it harder on myself by putting this series together for you. So I want it to not have been done in vain. Please, you're going to hear some shit from me today in my segment that's kind of scary. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to accelerate action for some of you. And, and, and given that's the case, you might want to make the most out of what I'm about to give you in getting that shit done. Here's what else I've got for you today. We have new member of the Expert Council, and I am very excited to announce that today. His name is Dr. Ken Berry. He has been an amazing help to me in my journey with keto, and now at this point in my life, I've lost over 70 pounds. I'm under 200 pounds. The last time I was under 200 pounds in my life was in my mid-late 20s, and it was back when I would come home from work and immediately go work out in a gym. I am in weight-wise physique-wise, the shape I was in when I was about 26 years old, and I'm, I'm about to be 48, all right, I'm, and Ken was a big part of that. He's going to be talking today about dealing with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This is an epidemic in America today. Uh, we're going to be talking about uses for IBC totes with Ben Falk. Uh, I have a lightning round of economic questions and a market update from John Pugliano, on the road, so his audio changes a couple times in it, but it's good enough. Dealing with challenged readers from Mike and Sue LaPreeze. The concept of a COVID second wave with Doc Bones. Jeff Lawton on building ponds where you have to contend with trees. And I have a segment, I've already live-streamed it on Facebook as I record this, on the coming potential real estate crash. Is it a doomsday, an opportunity, or both? And I have some bonus content here on the podcast that was not... Uh, included on the Facebook live stream. We'll have all of that in just a minute. Before we do that, since we're going to be talking about real estate in my segment today, I wanted to talk about a quote from the person I think is the most brilliant person in the world when it comes to real estate. No, it ain't Donald Trump. I'm talking about a guy that used hamburgers, cheeseburgers, 
bacon burgers, whatever, to invest in the most expensive real estate in the world, Ray Kroc, founder of McDonald's. He said the key to success is being in the right place at the right time, recognizing that you are there and taking action. When you hear my segment today about real estate and what's going on with it, you're going to be like, holy shit, this could be really bad. And it could. It could also be really great. It could also be really great. And what I want you to do is I don't want you to panic from it. I don't want you to immediately jump and go crazy about it. I'm not telling you, hey, there's going to be a holocaust you need to run away from. What I am saying is you have certain goals in your life. You need to plan for me to be wrong in my assessment, and you need to plan for me to be right in my assessment. You need to create for yourself options. So that when you realize you're in the right place at the right time, you can recognize that it's occurred and take action accordingly. And when it comes to getting your ass out of the city, I'm not saying run away because the city is going to catch on fire, though it might. Okay. What I'm saying is if you want out anyway and you're leveraged into real estate, you may not have the ability to leave next year. You may not have the ability to live, leave in three months. You may not be able to sell that property and get out from under it three months from now. It could go that fast. And it might not. We might collectively wake up, hear a loud pop as America pulls its head out of its ass. We might open up the economy as much as we possibly can, as fast as possible. And we might deal with a garden variety recession over the next year instead of a long protracted multi-year recession or worse, a depression. Because all three of those are highly possible right now. And I want you to be prepared to take the biggest advantage of all three of them. You might think, well, how the hell can I take advantage of a depression? People became multimillionaires in the Great Depression. People who had very little when it started, but recognized the place they were in, the time they were in, and understood where they were and took proper action, benefited at one of the worst of times. And if we do have any sort of recovery over a reasonable length of time, and I don't, I think even a depression won't look, it might look worse, but not as long as the Great Depression. To, to just the modern era that we're in, things work differently now. The better you do during, the better you will do during recovery and after recovery. So I want your mindset there through the whole episode today. The key to success is being in the right place at the right time, recognizing that you are there and taking action. And what I'm trying to do for you when you get to my segment today, instead of recognizing that you're in the right place and the right time, setting things up so that you will be. Do you see the difference? With that, let's go ahead and hear uh, first segment from our new expert council member, Dr. Ken Berry, dealing with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Ken Berry, a family physician with 20 years of clinical experience. And I'm answering a question for my good friend, Jack Spearco. I think a, a listener wrote in and has a problem with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, they were calling fatty liver disease. And this disease is becoming very prevalent in the United States and indeed everywhere in the modern world. The ketogenic diet is the one and only diet that I have ever seen reverse non-alcoholic fatty liver disease with any degree of success. Uh, all of the diets recommended by the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association 
are too high in carbohydrates to get the intended effect of burning the fat that has been inappropriately stored in the liver. Now, being in a state of ketosis from eating a ketogenic diet most likely does have a beneficial effect in that the ketones in your bloodstream will decrease inflammation and assist in healing of the liver. But the majority of the reason why a ketogenic diet, a low-carb diet, or a carnivore diet reverses fatty liver disease very quickly is because of the very low carbohydrate intake of a ketogenic diet. So anytime you eat too many carbohydrates, which break down into sugar, that sugar has to be either burned as energy or stored as fat. And when you eat just a little bit of sugar, then you're able to burn that up effortlessly. It's no big deal at all. But when you're eating the modern high-carbohydrate standard American diet or something similar to it, you're eating far too many carbohydrates, and that's going to lead to a spike in blood sugar and a spike in blood insulin levels. Your body is trying to get this sugar out of your bloodstream as quickly as is possible, and it does this by storing it as fat or fatty acids in the in the quickest way possible. And very often this fat gets stored on your booty or your belly or other places you'd rather not have it. But the most dangerous place of all is in the liver. And indeed, sometimes your body will store fat in the liver if you're eating a diet that consists of too many total carbohydrates. Of all the sugars, fructose, which is the sugar found in soft drinks and fruit juices and indeed all fruits, is the worst culprit when it comes to causing fatty liver disease. And so in order to do keto correctly to get rid of the fatty liver disease as quickly as possible, you need to eat a very, very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet, and you need to really try to avoid all fruit juices of any kind, whether sweetened or non-sweetened. It doesn't matter because orange juice, grape juice, apple juice are full of sugar, full of fructose, and that's going to actually cause your body to store fat in your liver. So yeah, the ketogenic diet is the best way, the quickest way I've ever seen in my 20 years of clinical experience to reverse non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, or in that uh, as well, uh, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis gets better very, very quickly with a low-carb keto carnivore diet. So I would highly encourage you to do that. As you may or may not know, there is no FDA-approved medication for fatty liver disease, and there will not be one soon because the only thing that stops your normal physiological process of storing fat in your liver when you eat too many carbohydrates is eating the proper human diet, which is a very, very low-carbohydrate diet. So best of luck to you. Eat keto. I promise that within four to eight weeks, if you're keeping your total carbohydrate intake under 20 total grams a day, your fatty liver will be back to normal. This is Dr. Barry. Thanks a lot for having me on, Jack. Again, I'm very excited to have Dr. Ken Barry as part of my expert council. I think it brings us a really uh, expanded um, value in our medical and nutritional expertise, which we're already great with Gary Collins and Doc Bones. All right, with that, um, 
I have next one, a segment from Ben Falk on uses for IBC totes, because that is a resource that is just abundantly available and either free or very inexpensive. Ben, take it away. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Wanted to do a segment on um, IBC totes, which I'm sure many people know a bunch about. And I've used them on and off over the years um, to hold biodiesel and to hold fuel. Uh, but then this last fall, I bought 12 of them, mainly for the cages, to palletize all my firewood. Between a couple buildings now, um, I'm using four to five cords. And I can get that many in 12 of those uh, of the 275-gallon IBC tote cages and it can basically remove one whole handling of the firewood for me and that's the drag of firewood use is basically the material handling so it eliminates the second to last stacking basically i can just dry i already have a fork tractor for many other reasons i already have pallet forks as well for other reasons so with that equipment which i need anyways i can just move about a third a quarter to a third of a cord in each cage to, from the log landing where I do all the processing, kind of the work yard and splitting, can stack in there and then I can move it to the point of use and just bring it in as I need it and it eliminates the whole, that whole stacking by the house, um, which would normally happen and has happened for like almost 20 years in my life. So that's been awesome. And I remove the top bars and weld them onto the side, just tack weld them to give it more structure. That's something I haven't seen in the YouTube videos that people have made about using IBC totes for firewood. But otherwise, about the same. Although I then mount a scrap roofing at a decent pitch on top, quite a liberal overhang there. So they're almost never rained on because in our climate, it takes a while to dry wood good. And... Um, then I've been using just more recently the the cubes inside where I got them. They came from like a soap making company and generally it's seemingly pretty benign stuff. Some of it has a strong fragrance, which you got to be a little bit careful with because that can stick around. But um, they're pretty much food grade and um, I clean them out and then I've been using them to store compost um, which has been going really well because, as many folks know, if you just have a compost pile, it's always getting overtaken by weeds, and it's it's just a lot of work, and you're always losing compost if you have a compost pile to the grass and other weeds around. So I, you can get about a third, or no, you can get a, over a yard, about a yard and a quarter in one of these. They're about four by four by four. My tractor can just lift one of those up when it's full on a pallet, Put it on a pallet first, shovel it in, or use your tractor to load it or whatever else you have um, with compost and put them, I stage them around the garden. And so now I have two years worth of food production, compost, staged around the garden, never more than about 25 steps from wherever I need it. So I can just walk over two five-gallon buckets and um, the weeds, nothing's eating my compost. And I take the compost I need out for this for the whole summer, basically and then plant my squash right into those bins because squash will grow out of your compost anyways, even if you don't intend it to. And it's a great place for them to grow. And then you're not dedicating bed space to squash because it just takes up tons of space. Cucumbers too, um, zucchinis, all the cucurbits. You can just grow in fertile piles and let them run over the grass 
over tarps, whatever else, over a parking area, depending on your climate. So that's a nice other function of so many of these. Of course, they're great for rainwater storage. I don't have much of a need for that right now, but I'm saving some in case I do. It's getting pretty dry here right now. And um, yeah, just thought I'd pass it on. I have some photos on my social media of like cutting open the cubes and showing how that works. We have, we made like a wood lattice work in the front to keep the soil in, but to be removable as you go to get the soil out. seems to be working pretty good. Um, hope everyone's doing well. Lots of great ideas there. Next up, we have kind of a lightning round of questions about the economy and a market update from John Pagliano. John is on the road during this segment. He was on his way to Living Free in Tennessee at Nicole Sauce's place. Um, so there's, he said, you know, it sounds like about tin can in this, this response. And I started listening to it, like, there's nothing wrong with it. And often there was, and then there wasn't again, and then there was again. So there will be some, uh, audio quality fade and then back in and then back out again in this but it's all totally legible it's not a lot of background noise just a, a distinct change so that's what you'll be hearing when that goes on otherwise this is good stuff and it's important information that you need to factor into your decision making about the economy going forward i'll tell you right now john's a little more optimistic sounding than i am uh but we're kind of in agreement we're both I'm just going to say, in fairly heavy cast positions right now, uh, that's as much for prevention of loss as it is for being ready opportunity-wise. Uh, John, take it away. Hey, TSP, we have a number of financial questions. Let's see how many of these I can get through and hopefully still have time to do a quick market update. The first question comes from Tom, and Tom sends in an article about how the Federal Reserve is now authorized to make purchases in bond exchange-traded funds. Well, this question came in a couple weeks ago. And literally, as of this week, um, the rules have been changed again. And not only will the Federal Reserve be purchasing bonds and junk bonds and less than investment-grade bonds through exchange-traded funds, but they will also now be directly purchasing those bonds from the issuing companies and corporations. Well, here's the bottom line on all the federal monetary stimulus and intervention-type policy from the Federal Reserve. And I'd really chalk this up to putting this under the category of worrying about the things that are in your circle of influence and your circle of concern. I mean, the bottom line is the Federal Reserve is going to do what the Federal Reserve does. And while I may not like the actions they take, there's really nothing I can do about it. And I think the big bottom line and takeaway on all this is, is that despite all the gloom and doom and all the chicken little economic collapse type scenarios that people are always dreaming up, Well, one of the key reasons that those prophecies and predictions are always wrong is that the Federal Reserve changes the rules as they go along. Rules and regulations are constantly being changed to adapt to fiscal policy and economic outcomes so that the system keeps perpetuating itself. You know, you've heard of the term kicking the can down the road. How long can they keep kicking that can? I would estimate a long, long, long time. So is the Federal Reserve changing and manipulating the rules? Absolutely. They always have. They always will. I really wouldn't worry about it. Our next question comes from Brad, and Brad is asking about paying his taxes from a Roth IRA conversion. This past year, Brad converted his traditional IRA to a Roth IRA, and in so doing, it's a tax consequence of about $10,000. Now, he can pull that money from the Roth IRA and pay that, 
or he can pay that $10,000 out of cash that he has on hand. Now, the other alternative is that he could take that $10,000 and use it to pay down about $45,000 he has in debt. Now, as far as background, Brad's been doing a really good job in saving and trying to attack the debt that he's already accumulated. And he's done a good job. So far, he's paid off about $15,000 in debt. And like I said, he still has about $45,000 to go. So this is similar to the situation where people will take a home equity loan at a low interest rate and use that to consolidate or pay off credit card debt that they've accumulated and where they're paying a much larger interest rate on. On paper, that makes sense because they're drastically reducing the amount of interest that they have to pay. But from a psychological standpoint, where they get into trouble is, is that once they've paid down that debt, they just start accumulating it again anyways, and in a couple years, they end up with a bunch of credit card debt and a second mortgage on their home. So it really comes down to your own personal conviction and how dedicated you are to becoming a discipline saver. But my personal advice would be to bite the bullet, keep the $10,000 in your Roth IRA, pay those taxes out of the cash you have, and then keep aggressively attacking that debt. Hey, Brad, good job on changing your life. The next question comes from Cannon, and he's basically asking for an explanation on capital gains taxes as they apply to the buying and selling of stocks. Well, Cannon, from a real simplistic aspect, here's what it comes down to. Anytime you buy or sell any stock that's in a retirement account, whether it's a 401k, a Roth IRA, traditional IRA, you don't have to worry about having any type of tax consequences on those trades that are within your retirement accounts. That money isn't taxed until you actually remove it from the account. And then when you withdraw the money from a traditional IRA or from a 401k, you're taxed on any of those distributions at an ordinary income rate. The one exception there is with the Roth IRA, you never pay taxes on that money, and that's why Jack and I are such a proponent of retirement savings within a Roth. Now, as far as capital gains in a traditional brokerage account, this would be any type of brokerage account that is classified as a non-retirement account. Will those stock transactions incur a tax consequence whenever the stock has been sold? And it works both ways. If you make money by selling a stock, then that gain is taxed. And on the other hand, if you lose money in a stock transaction, then that loss can be applied as a credit against gains that you have on another transaction. The bottom line on all this is that there's two types of capital gains. There's long-term capital gains and short-term capital gains. If you've sold that stock in less than a year, you know, in less than 365 days, you've bought and sold the individual stock then that transaction is a short-term gain or loss, and it's treated at ordinary income, meaning that if your salary is taxed at 15 or 20 or 25% tax rate, then that's the same tax rate that will be applied to any of your short-term gains. Now, on the other hand, if you've held that stock for at least a year, so you've bought that stock and you've held on to it for at least 366 days, and then you sell it, well, then that gain is taxed as a long-term capital gain, and it varies depending upon what your overall income level is, but basically that long-term capital gain tax is currently around 15%. And remember, you're only paying that on the gain itself, not on the overall transaction. Now, our last question comes from Tactical, and he's wondering what's going to happen to some of these large companies like Amazon and Walmart that have done so well during the lockdown of the pandemic but what's going to happen to them as the economy starts to reopen? Well, tactical, those companies have been dubbed by Wall Street 
as the companies that have been favored by the, what they're calling the stay-at-home economy. So the companies you mentioned, as well as others like Home Depot and Zoom and a lot of the pharmaceutical-type companies, they've really done well during the fear and the hysteria of the pandemic. And so what's likely to happen is, is that since these favored companies have done so well during the hysteria, if you own those stocks, it may be a good idea to start taking profits in those stocks and then either holding that cash now and waiting for some kind of a dip or a pullback, or to take that money and put it into other areas of the economy that have been hurt and hindered by the pandemic. You know, a classic example of that is stocks like energy companies, financials, and in particular, the transportation companies like the airlines and the cruise lines. So that's how the general theory of rotational stock investing works. The only caveat to that is, and, and this is where I want to come in with my general overall market summary of where we are right now. Currently, as I record this, the S&P 500 is hovering right around 3,100, and that's slightly above its 200-day moving average. And the 200-day moving average means nothing more than that's really about the average price that the S&P 500 has been at for the previous 12 months. So really what it says is that despite all the crazy volatility and the headlines you see, the S&P 500 is pretty much stable and tracking along with its annual average price. So the caveat to all this is that while I don't think we're in a panic mode and you should be worrying about a huge drop in stock prices, I also think the corollary to that is is that we've recovered so much off the March 23rd lows that there probably isn't a whole lot of upside to the market either. Bottom line, I think the stock market right now is in a holding pattern. I think it's prudent to be patient, and let's wait and see what happens. If you'd like to know more about my stock market commentary or follow along with my own personal trades, check out my blog at investablewealth.com, and please listen to the Wealthsteading Podcast. Well, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pagliano. Next up, we're going to hear from Mike and Sula Pries on dealing with, with children who have difficulty learning to read or challenges with learning to read, specifically as a homeschool parent. But I think this would help anybody that might be dealing with that situation. And, hey, right now, we're kind of all homeschool parents anyway, aren't we? This is Michael and Sula Pries with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live for the expert counsel. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP community. Today's question comes from Bob in South Dakota. It says SD. I'm assuming it's South Dakota and not San Diego. But anyway, we are homeschooling our son nine and daughter seven. We use the explode the code reading curriculum. While my daughter loves it, we are having a lot of trouble with my son. My wife feels he is falling behind and they often end up at odds during the lessons. She and he are often frustrated with the whole subject. I've heard you say not to worry about when a child learns to read, just that they learn. Still, I'm searching for a way to get him interested on his own. Hope you have some advice and or resources to help us along the way. Thanks for all you do, Bob. So, Bob, we're not experts. But if you've noticed lately, the experts, the scientists, they're actually people selling products. They're salesmen, not experts. So what we want to ask you to do is to look around the people that you know and say, what do they know about reading? What are they doing with their kids? And so we're going to share what we've seen in the homeschool community over the last 30 years and in our own 10 children. So one fun thing to do would be to get the Constitution, pull it up on your phone, and ask adults to read that out loud to you. It's harder than you think, and many people will tell you, uh, I don't read out loud. 
because reading is hard. So my favorite reading story is a friend with five children. The oldest could read very young. The youngest learned how to read. She doesn't even know how because the middle three were dyslexic. And the very middle one was severely dyslexic, but she would win speech competitions because she'd print out pictures to cue her in. And she was a fabulous speaker, highly intelligent kid, 20 years old maybe, still can't read. So everybody doesn't learn how to read. And most people that read can't actually read well, which is why the remedial class at college starts at the fifth grade level. So if by the time your child is 18, you can get them to the fifth grade reading level, you've probably done what the average person is actually doing. And that's like Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew's age, if you're thinking about what kind of book does that look like. So the average newspaper in the United States is written to the ninth grade level. It used to be 11th grade. Now it's ninth grade. But ninth grade isn't even ninth grade. So don't worry about any of that, the grade level, who's ahead of who, who's behind who. Because remember, reading is a very new human activity. In 1440, when the Gutenberg Press was invented and they printed a bunch of Bibles, they still didn't get out for another hundred years to most people. So think about maybe mid-1500s, we actually started reading. Now, you have the male audience which is a totally separate animal. So if you look at YouTube statistics, 62% of their audience is male because men like observing better hands-on things than they do sitting in class and reading. However, the government school, which is very female-centric, almost entirely female teachers in elementary, sit down, behave, listen to what I've said, and vomit back the information I gave you. And... Hopefully, we'll have a shift in our culture and we'll get strong, independent men who want to think and learn and love audiobooks and podcasts and all these things that don't require reading. They require you to listen while you're actually doing something. And I know our kids, they love podcasts because they like doing things. So decoding is very hard and it's very time consuming. It is the most difficult part of homeschooling. Now, if your kid is 12 and they can't read, they actually have a reading problem. You don't want them to get labeled because that really sticks with them for the rest of their life. But here's the definition of dyslexia. Yes, dyslexia is a learning disorder that involves difficulty reading due to problems identifying speech sounds and learning how they relate to letters and words. Decoding, also called reading disability. Dyslexia affects areas of the brain that process language. So I could have said my three-year-old is dyslexic because he can read, but he's really struggling. He doesn't know how to say onomatopoeia. But my three-year-old wasn't dyslexic. He was struggling with reading because he wanted to read. My 10-year-old was struggling with reading because she didn't want to read. (laughs) And she loves audiobooks, and she has a great vocabulary. Even as a 10-year-old, nobody knew she couldn't read because of the conversation she could have. So probably want to relax on the reading and enjoy that. So the real question might be, what do I want my kids to read? So while I'm not an expert, my mom is a reading specialist. And her thing is, you need a book series that draws a kid in and they really love it because what a book series offers is a lot of the same characters. So you don't have to decode the characters names again. And I'd recommend you get something below their grade level. So it's 
easy. Then once you get a book that your kid might like, you have to assign them time. Yes, and so that's an interesting thing because it depends on the child, right? So this becomes, again, when we talk about knowing your children, this becomes child-specific. So one of the things that we have to deal with is the amount of time read versus, say, a chapter each day. And it depends on our kids. We have one child, we can tell him, and he struggles with reading. Um, He has an hour to read, and he'll sit there, and he'll read and try to read as much as he can. Very methodically. Yes, in an hour. Where our daughter... If you tell her she has an hour to read, she'll get through maybe a page. Let's just sit there. So for her, it's the goal is you've got to get the chapter done. Uh, and then allow them to read the same book um, every day for a week in front of the mirror, like um, Go Dog Go. So it seems pretty basic, but having them read in front of a mirror, most people don't want to stand up and read in front of people, and that's a great way to break through the reading cycle. Yeah, and then they can read it out loud to somebody, and you can offer edits during the week if they need help. But one of the you know the greatest fear people has is speaking in front of people. So learning to read out loud, it really helps you overcome some fear by having that as a regular part of your schooling. So the other thing is just keep going. Explode the Code is a really cute, great curriculum, and I just looked up. They have a really great online presence also which sound, looks super fun. I'm going to have to look into that. But there is no magic curriculum. I've switched so many times early on in my homeschooling experience, and it just that's not how it works. Just find something good, stick with it. Or when you want to shift to another curriculum, go back a grade or two, or maybe go back to K if you can afford to, and have your kid whip through those books really quickly. Like we're doing kindergarten, and we're doing 20 pages a day. Woo, your phonics is doing great. It's really good to give them that kind of encouragement. Um, another funny story is I met a man from India when we were selling Krispy Kreme donut cards one time. And I had three of my kids with me. And he's like, oh, you homeschool. I love homeschooling. And then he had to tell us his story, which was really cute. Him and his two brothers lived out in the, you know, the edge of the world in India and didn't go to school till they were 12. I don't mean didn't go to school. They had zero education except for growing food and hurting their animals. And these brothers have multiple master's degrees and PhDs. He said, we don't let children play. We don't let them world, learn about the world enough. We're so into them learning how to read. Another great story is on patience is um, Andrew Pudawa, the author of Institute for Excellence in Writing, has a story about his daughter when she's around 14. It's time to learn algebra. And they were just going at it. And he loves math. He's good at math. He's a Suzuki violinist. And he really wanted to spend this time with his oldest daughter. And he finally told her one day, you know what? I'm done. You can do this on your own or you can come back to me when you're ready. And I think it took two years for her to come back to him and say, I want to go to college. I need algebra. And he said it became so easy at that point because she was invested in the process and she really, really wanted to learn. Another fun thing to do to help your kids see their progress, you have to read the same thing over and over again. So um, when my oldest was eight, I had handwritten all of Proverbs because we didn't have a printer back then or a computer. And we would highlight it. We'd do Proverbs 1 on the first day of the month, and then we would highlight all the words he knew. And then every 30 days when we'd come back to that, we would highlight the new words, and then he could really see his progress. And you can do that with any, you could get 30 pieces of poetry or anything like that. But appreciating their strengths and how they're growing is so important. 
Yes. So this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you that when designing the life you'd love to live for your children, patience is a virtue. Back to you, Jack. All right, next up, let's hear about the possibility and potential of a COVID second wave from Doc Bones. And I'll be back with a few thoughts of my own on this uh, after we hear what Bones has to say. Hi, Joel and MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website, doomandbloom.net, where you'll find 1,200 articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author of books like the Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, and Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. COVID-19 cases may again be on the rise as a second wave of infections coincide with the reopening of many businesses throughout the United States. Now, perhaps the first thing I should mention here is that a second wave occurring as society reopened was an inevitable event. Inevitable. Regardless of the timing of measures taken, pandemics commonly have this pattern. Health officials, political policy, none of this does much to stop it from happening and may do something to maybe lessen its effect or perhaps delay it somewhat. And uh, by the way, it should be noted if you live in a small town, the second wave is likely your first wave. We don't live in Luxembourg or Liechtenstein, a little bitty country. We are a big country, and the virus just hasn't been recognized everywhere yet. If we take previous pandemics, say the Spanish flu of a century ago, you'll see that there were not two, but three waves, one each in spring and fall of 1918, and another one in the winter of early 1919. Each of these waves claimed their share of victims, but the second wave was actually the most lethal. In spite of many people being surprised at recent increases in cases in certain states, honestly, most health officials have long stated that more cases are expected. And the reason for this dismay, I call it COVID fatigue. The public is just getting weary of social distancing and face coverings and all the other important measures that stop the spread of infection. They are just sick and tired of staying home and donning this personal protection equipment, avoiding the restaurants, movie theaters, malls, and other staples of normal American society. Let's face it, the new normal compares pretty poorly to the good old days. Even for those who have adjusted to pandemic prevention guidelines, current headlines have sparked these nationwide mass protests. These are spilling over internationally, amazingly. And as you can imagine, large demonstrations don't follow the rules of social distancing. They hamper efforts to stop the spread of the virus. COVID fatigue and mass protests are, well, maybe the one-two punch here. But public policy is a big issue as well. Reopening too quickly may cause large numbers of new cases. But staying in semi-permanent lockdown must eventually throw the nation, any nation, into a major economic depression. The balance is so delicate that a perfect solution is almost impossible to achieve. Either option is just fraught with risk. All this makes it more likely that a second wave is going to be significant. But how significant? Will we see a ripple in the pond or will we see a massive tidal wave? One expert says that things are no safer today than they were weeks ago when we were on full lockdown. The recipe for personal safety doesn't change even as society opens up. Others aren't so pessimistic, and indeed we have learned a lot about SARS-CoV-2, the virus behind the COVID-19 pandemic. Besides social distancing, we have come to realize the importance of mass testing, keeping close track of contacts, all sorts of things. And with workplaces beginning to reopen, this information becomes pretty essential. We've also realized the importance of having personal protection items in our medical kits, something I've talked about for years. 
surgical N95 masks considered to be for medical workers only. That's what they've been spouting to you. But that leaves the average citizen with a limited array of less effective cloth face coverings. Yes, health officials endorse them, but only because of the lack of supplies of the other stuff. Yet many folks ended up becoming medical workers, quote-unquote, when someone in the family came down with a mild to moderate case of COVID-19. I think I can make a safe prediction that there will be more standard face masks to go around in future outbreaks if we're smart, and I'm hoping, if we're smarter, that many of these will be made in the USA. Despite knowing more about the SARS-CoV-2 virus, there's still a lot of unknowns out there. As fall approaches, opening schools and colleges is going to provide another avenue for a second wave of COVID-19. The risk to children may not be so severe. Uh, Only about 20 U.S. deaths have occurred so far in those 14 and under, and 120 in those 15 to 24 years of age. That's only 140 deaths in those 24 years of age and younger out of 117,000 U.S. deaths, 2 million known cases, and probably 20 million actual cases, maybe more. Even though COVID in those 24 and younger is rarely fatal, these kids and young adults may infect their older relatives if they aren't careful about hand and respiratory hygiene. So what's going to happen when sports events and concerts attract large crowds again? Well, hopefully a combination of continued social distancing, face coverings, and continued research is going to prevent a major second wave. But honestly, I consider this unrealistic, at least in the short term. What then can we do to prevent a total shutdown and long-term economic ruin? As the disease is more severe in those 65 and older, and maybe those with underlying health conditions, perhaps restrictions by age or condition could reopen most of society and save the economy. Those over 65 are about 12% maybe of the workforce, but they represent the grand majority of severe COVID cases and deaths. They are at the highest risk. They should probably wait a while before going back to work. Now, those workers that are 15 to 54 years old easily comprise 80% of the workforce, but only a total of 7,000 so far deaths out of 117,000 in the United States. Why can't those 54 and younger rejoin the workforce? Well, admittedly, this policy would be a textbook form of ageism. Indeed, I would be a victim of it myself. The placing restrictions on certain groups of people for health reasons is actually nothing new. Travelers returning from other countries are required to self-quarantine, as are contacts of COVID-19 patients. The CDC specifically singles out the elderly and those with underlying health conditions for special precautions all the time. Of course, I know it would be more complicated than just telling those 54 years of age and younger to just get back to work. What about those people that are 55 to 64 years old? What about schools and universities? Even if allowed to return to a normal workplace, it's just not going to be the good old days normal. I don't have all the answers, and at this age, I'm losing more and more brain cells every day. These questions are for someone higher than my pay grade. Still, with the second wave on the way, age-related guidelines might be something to consider. I'll bet you have some ideas on how to safely reopen the nation without bankrupting it. If you do, be sure to let me know. This is Joel Nandi, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, experience the joy you get from helping the elderly, that is me, by following our channels and checking out our website at doomandbloom.net and medical supply store at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So let me start out with this whole concept of the second wave. If you're looking at even increased 
numbers of COVID right now, and you're calling it a second wave, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Second wave would incur that we finished. We're done. We're not. Never were. Not going to be. You'll notice something. Yeah, the, the media is trying to spend that, well, Texas and Florida opened up, so their caseload is going up. They're spiking, okay? And, and New York's staying locked down, so look at, look at, they're doing so much better. Okay, this is a denial of reality of how viruses and pandemics and, and, and how the curve works. They locked down New York tighter than a monkey's ass, and they had it explode because you crammed freaking that many people into that small of an area, and you have public transportation and subways and buses. Duh. So New York City specifically had its huge cycle through. It kind of did have its first wave. Because enough people got sick that enough immunity was put out there that it, it had a natural level of suppression on the virus. The, the last estimate that I heard officially was over 25% of people in New York City had COVID or have had COVID. That was two months ago. And gee, they don't want to talk about it anymore because it doesn't fit their narrative. That number is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 40% at this point or more. That is not enough for herd immunity, but it is enough for significant immunity. It is the same as taking 40% of the people and actually locking them in full quarantine. It's better because they have no ability to spread the damn thing anymore. We also know asymptomatic spread is not a thing. And you can say all you want about pre-symptomatic spread. And all that really means is a person that's pre-symptomatic, as they become symptomatic, is more likely to spread the disease. Masks, absolutely. You know when? Prolonged, close, personal contact. The rest of it is bullshit, and it's designed as a mechanism of control. This is a pandemic. It is a pandemic. It is, it is, it is, it is. That's how it works. This is the shit that happens to people in society and has happened throughout our time in the world. And as pandemics go, this one's pretty mild. This one's pretty mild. I know if you have someone you care about who got really sick or died, that's hard to hear. But in the global scheme of things, in massive death of human beings, this is pretty mild compared to other things we have had to deal with. And my God, what happens if we have to deal something like that again? In the end, the way these things always happen, the most susceptible get sick first. It looks worse in the beginning. And all places like Texas and Florida did with our lockdowns, was forestall what was going to happen anyway, and eventually it did. And eventually it did. And it's going to have to cycle through. And yes, wash your hands. Yes, when it makes sense, wear a mask. If you're going to be inside a building with a lot of people that you don't know for a long period of time, masks can help reduce spread. Yes, the surgical masks or the impromptu masks or anything do not do as good a job of stopping the virus itself. You can still breathe the virus in, but they do have an effect. It is a thing you can do. Now, if you are walking through parking lots wearing a mask, you look like a moron. If you're walking in the park wearing a mask, you look like a moron. If you're doing all kinds of stupid shit where there's no one else around you wearing a mask, unless you're like preparing food for people to eat, you look like a moron. You can still do it, but you're not doing anything. It doesn't matter, and you look like a moron because you're behaving like a moron. It's like wearing a condom while you lay alone at night in bed to prevent a woman from getting pregnant who's not there with you. Okay? And, and in the end, I'm going back to New York City. 60% of the people that got COVID were people that stayed home. We need to stop this. No and, and a huge portion of the death were people in elder care facilities. It's something like 48% of the deaths 
or elder care facilities, which, which is 0.6% of the population. That doesn't mean those lives aren't important. It doesn't mean that I don't care. It does mean that we have to have a little bit more common sense, and you're going to hear why when you hear my segment um, after Jeff's segment. So next up, I got Jeff Lawton, because I'm just going to tell you, if we go back into this lockdown shit, you do get a depression, period. Anyway, here's Jeff Lawton on something better. How about building ponds and dealing with trees? Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And um, we have a question here. I've had a uh, half-acre pond in Oregon um, that um, at the moment is um, only ephemeral between December and May, and um, the owner wants to uh, perennialise it so it's a permanent pond. So um, it sounds like they're, they're digging down to uh, better clay content, um, spending more time compacting it in um, with bentonite additions to make sure it's sealed and, and, and a permanent, permanent body of water. But their question is, they have two uh, oak trees. Now, um, the description is that one's on the edge of the pond. Now, as long as that's the edge of the pond that's not the pond wall, if it's a constructed pond wall and it's on the edge of the water on the constructed pond wall, it has to come out, has to come off. And ideally, it, you have to take it out, roots and all, take the root ball out, extract it. Because any any organic matter, even though it's oak that might take a long time, the roots eventually will potentially weaken and compromise the uh, construction of the wall. The constructed wall will then potentially leak. So you can cut it off as a stump and leave it and gamble with how long it's going to take to rot. But as a living tree, it stood there. Uh, one day it will die and pipe through. And also, if we have big wind stress, it can have root movement, which will crack the wall and compromise the wall. And then we've got another problem that we've got to deal with. So normally, if it's on, especially on the inside on the constructed, compacted earth wall that's been built by the machines, it has to come off and out and, and, and dug out and removed. There's another tree in the base of the pond. Now, that terminology I'm not sure about. When they say the base of the pond, I'm not sure whether they mean it's inside the pond, you know, inside the, the excavated area. If it's inside the excavated area, it's probably best to be taken out. Um, but you're going to be digging down there, it's going to get in the way. It is half an acre pond, so it's quite big. You're going to be digging around it and extracting clay. It's going to be awkward uh, with a big spreading root system. Normally, again, we'd take it out and move it, get rid of it. Um, it's going to die. Yeah, any tree that has um, 18 inches of water st stood on its trunk is going to die, um, unless it's a, a, a swamp cypress or something that lives in water, but any normal tree that doesn't live in water, as soon as you put water up the trunk a little bit, just a few inches, and they'll often die. Um, if it's going underwater, and you've got a really, really big pond, and there's not in the excavation area, and it's somewhere way out in the back, yeah, no, you can leave it there, and it will just become fish habitat. But if it's right in the base of a half-acre pond, and it's getting in the way, um, it's no great loss just to take it out, because it's going to die anyway, and it may be making it hard for you to excavate. Now, if you're talking about the base of the pond being outside of the constructed wall, downhill from the constructed wall, uh, the base of the valley below the constructed wall, 
Um, if it's down there, not a problem, just leave it, it's okay. As long as it's outside of the constructed wall area, or at least at the very, very lowest point of the constructed wall area. Um, you know, because uh, it's not likely to send its roots uphill through the constructed wall and into the pond. Uh, but if it's on the top of the constructed wall or on the edge of the constructed wall near the, near near its ho- top height, it's going to put its roots down into the pond. Eventually, it's going to pipe through when those roots die, or it's going to crack with those big winds. There you go. All right, so good stuff from Jeff. I want to talk to you today about um, a potential collapse in real estate prices across the country. Uh, with With my segment here is what I see is a pending real estate crash. I didn't say collapse. It's really important that people understand me when I speak because I say something and then people add to it, uh, enhance it, etc., instead of sticking with the precise language that I'm using. So I'm saying a real estate crash. A collapse would be you can't sell a house anywhere. Nobody wants to buy any houses. Nobody can get any credit. It's completely, it's worse than the Great Depression. Um, and it's the same everywhere. Like, it's just a complete, it's James Wesley Rawls, Patriots coming collapse. That would be a collapse. A crash means that specific properties in specific markets are going to get hit really hard. And they will, just as a rising tide floats all boats, a falling tide drops all boats. And Property values across most of the United States, I think, will be suppressed. Before I go any further with this, I want to say something. I have been saying since 2008, even though I have been wrong only a few times in in predictions like this, that I always reserve the right to be wrong. And I'm looking at all these indicators, and I'm making an assessment. And everything that I teach when it comes to being preparedness, when it comes to investing, when it comes to life decisions, lifestyle design, is you always plan for both outcomes. But right now is not a time to ignore the potential outcome of a real estate crash. And and I do see that being almost inevitable. Again, I reserve the right to be wrong, but I see it as almost inevitable. The other thing I want to be clear about is everything that I'm saying is going to happen or is likely to happen and will occur, and I'm relating it to the COVID pandemic and the things that the government has done, which is absolute asinine stupidity around COVID, that doesn't mean COVID is causing these things. Almost 100% of this stuff, I have been saying, will eventually happen over the next 10 to 20 years, and I've been saying that for 12 years. So all of this stuff between 2020 and 2030 is due anyway, um, and, and including part of what this real estate crash is, is actually migration out of the urban, high-concentrated areas into the outer suburbs and eventually, for many people, completely away from your New York Cities, your Seattles, your San Francisco's, your Los Angeles's, even your Dallas's, your Tallahassee's, your Atlanta's, etc. Like this is going to be in mass everywhere. And I did a podcast about two weeks ago where I said the time to do this is now. Like this is your time to jump. Like get out of these places now. Go. And I gave a whole bunch of reasons. Then earlier this week I said I'm looking at rents. I'm looking at rents across the country in places like San Francisco, these really expensive places. And we're starting to see the rents come down. And we're seeing them drop by, you know, a tune of about 10%. 
on average, like Seattle, San Francisco, et cetera. And people are like, oh, you don't know nothing. You don't know anything. I mean, it's still so expensive. It's $4,000 for a three-bedroom apartment or something like that, you know, whatever. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. What matters is the landlord has financed that property and has a given cost to service the debt on that property. They can only command so much in rent, and whatever they command in rent has to be greater than what they have to pay to service the property, or they are losing money on the property. And if it retracts enough, they're also stranded in the property where they're losing money. In other words, I can't sell it to another person who wants to be a landlord because I can't get enough to cover the debt that I have. This is only one problem. This is only one problem. And again, COVID is accelerating all this. The other problem is what I call the Airbnb effect. So I think this will be less impactful in rural communities, depending on you know lockdown 2.0 or not. But there are tons of people now that are real estate investors that are not using a model that worked even 10 years ago, which is I buy the property, I maintain the property, and I rent it to a common tenant, someone that's there for six months, 12 months, 24 months, 36 months lease type situation. They're short-term tenant situations, which have a lot of advantages if you're an Airbnb uh, uh, entrepreneur. Because if I have you staying in, in an apartment and you start to be a problem for me, it's a lot of work to get you out of that apartment, to evict you. And in, in the places that are going to have the biggest impact on this, it's even, it's even more difficult. Seattle, San Francisco, et cetera. To get a bad tenant out is a nightmare. And then with COVID, a lot of local governments said you can't even evict somebody. Now, it could, but you could have been not paying me for, for four months already. And then COVID hits. Because COVID, I can't evict you. And now I'm stranded in this property. So all that's happening. The Airbnb thing, though, the, the, the reason a lot of people started doing that, and even people that are doing more of a long-term rental in your big cities are doing Airbnb, is because if you're a problem for me, and, and I'm airbnb a property to you, or using a competitor website to Airbnb, and I say, get out, and you go, I don't want to leave. I'm a tenant. You have to evict me. I go, hold on. Hello, police. Yes, I have a person who won't leave my property. And they come and they throw you in the street. They just throw you out of the property. Like, I don't have to do anything other than say, I want this person out and they won't leave. So I know people personally, more than one, who were doing long-term rentals in the old model that switched to Airbnb model. So that is heavily involved in these cities as well. And several of them are in specifically Seattle Uh, in Los Angeles that I know personally doing this. So they're basically renting to the type of person you used to rent to in a conventional lease. And they're using Airbnb just because they can evict the person very, very quickly without actual formal eviction. So you've got all of this going on. You've got people leveraged into real estate. If you think of all the other real estate crashes, 2008, 2009, they talked a lot about how subprime lending, etc. But there was a lot of leveraged money for landlords, flippers, etc. in that market as well that contributed to it. The, the crashes in the 80s, uh, early 80s. All of this stuff was how much money was leveraged in the market. Okay, so this is, this is your old leveraged amount of money in the real estate market. This is today's money where you can't even see my hands. There is hundreds of billions more money leveraged into the market. There's actually trillions of dollars more money leveraged into the real estate market right now than there was in 08, 09. We learned nothing. And all those shitty loans that they were giving people in 08, 09, they said, we don't do that anymore. Yeah, we do that now. They stopped doing that for like two years. That's part of why we had this huge resurgence. That's why we had the hottest real estate market in 25 years just a year ago. So we got this going on everywhere. 
And I said back in 2010 that eventually, the way these things are going in the cities, they will begin to create an exodus. People will leave the cities, and they will head out into the country. That that's going to come. I never meant that in a city like New York with 8.6 million people, that like you would go down to a population of 4 million. So if you, if you think that's what I'm saying, you're not understanding me. You're not understanding the very small percentage necessary to crash a market. It doesn't take a lot to crash a market. So if you have 2%, 3% of people that live in the New York City area, 8.6 million people, leave, New York City's real estate market crashes the next day. Now, they probably won't leave in one day. But you get my point. Like Once that's realized, 2-3% of that market is all it takes. <clears throat> San Francisco, same thing. Los Angeles, same thing. It takes 2-3%. to The numbers are already getting there. Not 2-3% drop in rental, 2-3% drop in people leaving. And this has been going on for a long time. It's part of what I call the walking to freedom movement. It's not just a walking to freedom movement in, 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 to, in leaving government. It's leaving situations that people just don't want to be in anymore. The fact that in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, I can be a business owner. I'm paying exorbitant lease costs for a location in the city. I am paying ridiculous taxes, ridiculous licensing fees, and I'm competing in a hyper-competitive market. And then, here's a homeless person taking a shit on the front steps of my business. Literally, like, there's my door, it opens this way, right? And then, just on my stoop outside, there's a homeless person squatting and dropping a deuce on my, the front of my business. If I call the police, they'll come kind of talk to the homeless person. They won't make them clean up their own shit, and they'll kind of suggest that they leave. They won't arrest them. If I go outside and physically remove, they'll arrest me for physically removing somebody taking a shit in front of my business. That's the situation before COVID. And that's why I said COVID is simply accelerating these things. The way I described it is COVID is killing the dying. So if I'm a business owner, you've already locked everything down. My business is already in the tank. Homeless people are shitting on my front uh, stoop. And then real estate begins to collapse And riots take off. Police are like, screw it. We're not going to do anything to stop the people that are doing the bad shit, but we will prevent the people from just, just simply defending their property. We'll throw those people in jail. Why would I stay? Why would I stay? So what ends up happening is your most productive people walk. They go somewhere else. They go to small-town America. They go to smaller cities. They go to cities that have a much more... <clears throat> spread out population with the suburbs. Um, here's an example, Dallas-Fort Worth. Dallas itself screwed. But the whole area, <clears throat> I mentioned before, New York City, 8.6 million people. 304 square miles. 304 square miles. Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. It's a bunch of cities kind of all in a big, we call it a metro mess. <clears throat> There's some areas with really congested populations, but overall, 7.2 million people. Over 11,000 square miles. That's the kind of place a business owner goes. No taxes, etc. So they, they move to these areas and they can live outside the city. They can be well outside the city and still have a huge market to sell to. If they're in any kind of like manufacturing or something like that, then they can go way out rural and they get cheap labor without unions and without homeless people shitting on the front step of their business. All of these things are combining to cause an exodus from the city. So I called this two weeks ago. I come on this week and say, rents are dropping. You know what comes out today? 
Wall Street Journal shitting all over small town America. Just shitting on it. Just like, oh, the allure will wear off soon. In other words, hello, welcome to last week, Wall Street Journal. They just figured out that this is happening. They just figured out that people are like, you know what, screw this shit, I'm out of here. And they're leaving. And what's happening, and it's coming in waves, is most of the people that leave first are not property owners. They're renters. And all they're doing is they're just waiting for that lease to expire. I'm already working part, I'm already working remotely for this tech company in, in San Francisco, let's say. And, you know, they're still locked down. I can't go in. And I'm already negotiating with my boss. Hey, look, you know what? I can't afford to live here under this situ situation. Can I make this working remote thing permanent? And my boss, who was not open to it three months ago, has seen no decline. In fact, my work's better than ever because I want him to feel that way, right? It's in, in my best interest because I like this working from home thing. I don't like being locked down, but I like working from home. It's like, why not? Of course, I'm out of here. So I can move 200 or 2,000 miles away. I can keep my income exactly where it is. And I can cut my cost of living by 100%. I cut it in half. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to do that. And how many does it take? It doesn't take a tremendous number of people. And what happens is... If you put a surplus of anything, you crash everything in that space. So first the rental properties start to decline. Now you start to get stranded capital from landlords who can no longer afford to service the debt. They start having to figure out how to divest themselves of this property, and they start doing so. As they do, they're taking less for the property than it would have sold for a year ago, obviously. As that happens, you begin to drag down all property prices, and all sellers have to go to a lower price point to move the property. This results in more collapse of the, of the price. Okay. On top of it, all your problems in the city get worse, and no one has any backbone to do anything to fix it. If riots kick up over some other thing, people are pissed off, shit burns again. Where, where, do you, where does this stop? Where people just finally say, I've got, I've had enough. And all the people that leave are whom? They're your most productive citizens. They're your tax base. They're your entrepreneurs. They're your people that don't cause trouble. What does that leave you with? Your burden, your tax burden instead of your tax base. Your non-entrepreneurs and the people that cause effing trouble. So what does that do? That takes more of the segment of the people who are your entrepreneurs, your tax base, and your productive individuals that don't cause trouble, and they say, F this too. It worked for Johnny. When he left, I'm getting my ass the hell out of here. And the way you know that this is coming, when the mainstream media, like the journal, start to say something isn't a problem, and they start to point out the reasons it can't be and it won't be, you know that most likely it's about to be. You know that it is. And we know that because if we're students of history, and we do not study history, boys and girls, we do not study history so that we won't repeat the mistakes of the past. That is bullshit that you tell your children to get them to do their homework that you know doesn't mean jack diddly squat about anything for real. We study history, boys and girls, because the mistakes of the past will be made again, full stop. So... When we see them coming, we can position ourselves. And that's what you need to be thinking about now. If you are someone that lives in a large metropolitan area, especially some of these tech-centric places where the vast majority of people are still employed but they are working remotely, and you ever want to get out, 
I would suggest being on the first plane out rather than the last plane out. I would suggest figuring out how to make that happen now. If you want to stay, then you better have a plan to deal with this shit when it comes. And you better be able to service the debt on your property easily, even if your income is drastically affected. If you can't do that, you need to be thinking ahead. Now, on the other side of this, how bad this is going to be, how far this is going to go, is going to have a lot to do with what happens in the next 60 days. In the next 60 days, the people that run this country, which are the oligarchy and the politicians combined, are going to make a choice. They're going to make a choice that, hey, we have a pandemic. We have a pandemic. Okay, so... We're going to do the best we can, and we're going to open shit back up, and we're going to go back to life the best we can, and we're going to deal with it. We're going to take it on the shin because that's all we can do because we have a pandemic whether we do that or not. We can either have a pandemic and a depression, or we can have a pandemic and a recession. It's up to us now. We're going to have a recession. We're in the middle of a recession right now. It just hasn't really hit you yet that we are. So we know we've already created a recession. We have to decide, do we want a pandemic and a depression? Because if it's 60 days from now, they're locking down more cities, and the ones that are locked down are not opened up, I guarantee you, if that happens, you're looking at a, a, a depression. Something no living person has truly ever seen. Anybody that was alive during the Great Depression right now was a little bitty kid, and they don't really remember. Good for them, because you don't want to remember. You might get to see what it looks like. Now, that does not mean the end of all life. That does not mean the dollar, you have to have a, a wheelbarrow full of money to buy a sack of potatoes. That doesn't mean all of the hysteria. What it means is massive flux. All it means is, the, is what was supposed to be a decade of flux. And I've been calling 2020 to 2030 a decade of flux since 2014 was the first time I used that term. All that happens is that 10 years of flux gets condensed into about three. And it's everything. It's the, the move to automation. It is the decline in, in, in the public education sector. It is the decline of the college education sector and the university system. All of this stuff. Okay, so now let's compound the real estate problem. So how many of these like satellite second-tier cities and towns? Right, They're not huge cities and towns. They're like really nice small-town America, really great place to live. But the reason they survive is there's two or three giant schools there, universities where rich pa parents send their kids to be messed up in the head with social justice and other crap like that. And one of those of three universities that are supporting this town, or one university when there's only one doing it, <clears throat> what if it doesn't even close its doors? Because some of them are going to close their doors. It's just enrollment's cut in half. What happens to the real estate? How much real estate is leveraged in that area based on student population? You see where this goes. And what this means is my opinion is, this is an opinion, it's not a guarantee, my opinion is the best opportunity you're going to have to get your ass out of the city into a decent place, and it doesn't have to be a million miles away. Fort Worth is 30 minutes from me, from here. It would be less if there wasn't this thing called traffic. But I'm out, I'm out, I'm out in the unincorporated county area. Everybody around me has multiple acres, everybody's spread out. Everybody has the ability to take, take care of themselves, and everybody's kind of like agreed to help take care of each other. That's what I'm talking about. You can be way out in Jabib, Sheboyganville, right? Or you can be somewhere like I am in the urban rural fringe. But if you want out, you've got a few months where it's going to be the best opportunity you're going to have for the next few years. That doesn't mean you're never going to have it again. I mean, you're going to be stuck forever. But I'm going to tell you, if this happens, and I would say, see, I don't deal in absolutes. I deal in probabilities. My probability on this right now is, is about 80, 85 percent. 
and I, and still there's a wide variability. It's like I got 85 to 80 to 85% chance you're going to get hit with a, a supercell thunderstorm that's going to have tornadoes in it. I still don't know if it's going to hit your house, and I don't know if they're going to be EF1, EF2, EF3, EF4 tornadoes. I don't know yet. But I know here's this there's 85% chance that a supercell thunderstorm is going to hit you. Because it's going to hit all of us. This is like a hurricane the size of the whole damn country. But some of us will be in the outer bands and we won't be hit as hard. When 0809 crash happened here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, property came down a tiny bit, but it really wasn't. I mean, I sold a house, it wasn't even hard. It wasn't even hard. Right? If you were buying a house, you could get a good deal, but you weren't getting an incredible deal. Florida, Arizona, California, Washington. <laughs> and I think it's coming all over again. But this time, much bigger, much longer, and much worse. Because it was supposed to take about 10 years for this exodus to occur. And I think it's going what's going to, what exodus is going to happen is going to happen in about two to three years. So don't think this is like a once and done or quick and done thing. This is going to be a long, protracted recovery if, if we come to our senses mostly in the next 60 days. If we don't, you could see a decade, a decade of disarray. Which you're going to, again, like I said, all this is the, the school system being rapidly changed, um, automation taking away, all this is coming anyway. Long term listeners know this. I've been saying this a long time. So I would start making plans now if I were you. I would start making plans. How am I going to get out of here, and where am I going to go? And some people might say, well, does that mean that rural real estate will go up in value as the migration occurs? Maybe, maybe not. In some areas, it won't do anything. In some areas, it'll go up a little bit. In some areas, it'll come down a little bit because you're talking about there's, a, there's so much, there's so many places for people to go. It's a big diffusion. So you're not going to have like, You know, a half a million people leave, leave Los Angeles and go to some small town in Nebraska. You know, two or three people will go to that small town in Nebraska, and two or three to go to another small town in some other place, and two or three will move up into New England and to New Hampshire, and two or three will move to Montana, and two or three will move to, you know, uh, this part of Texas, and a hundred will move to that part of Texas, and a whole shitload of them will come to Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin. And I really... Really, really suggest that if you want to move, you get on it. Because if you don't, what I think is going to happen to a lot of people, and the higher priced your market is, the more likely it is you're going to get stranded. In other words, you can't even say, well, I'm willing to take a loss on the property. If you have a huge underlying mortgage principle and you fall below that, you got to have the money here for, that, for the bank to let you sell that house. And if you abandon it, then you have no credit to buy a new property. So I would pull as much capital in reserve right now as possible. I would figure out where I wanted to go, and I would get it done. Again, I'm back to people that want to do this, because what I don't want to see is you stuck and then having to take this dream that you've been working on for years and defer it. Anyway, with that, guys, I'm going to recommend you check out my book on selling houses. You can find it on Amazon. It's called The 1% Effect. It is our item of the day today. Here's the good news. It's probably worth $100, bucks, easy. You can get it for $3. It's an ebook. Me and a guy named Dustin DeFries wrote it. Um, I outline exactly how I sell properties no matter what. And if you're Kindle Unlimited, you get it for free. 
So this hasn't been a big commercial of that. I just felt kind of obligated to throw that in for you there. So let's chat just a little bit more about how there's some opportunity here. Number one, if you are not in kind of the top end price of your market, you have some forgiveness and some more time because what happens whenever these real estate devaluation events happen is people begin to move down in-house. So the lower you are on the tier, the longer it takes before it gets to you because there's people being evicted, thrown out, or bailing out of homes that are far more expensive than yours, and they want to land in something like you have. So if you know how to sell a house well, you can. there might be actually kind of a, a short-term boom in mid-tier-priced houses. You also need to think about how, again, I talked about capturing capital there. You need to think about, like, if I'm not really sure exactly what I want to buy yet, I don't think you're going to see this explosion in prices in rural areas. So selling, capturing your equity, moving, renting, and finding, taking the time to find, if you have the chance to go and you want to go, there's an opportunity there. And then remember what I keep saying about opportunity and problems. Problems are opportunities. The people that are going to actually get really hurt here are the ones in complete denial, and they're going to get hurt. The severity will be based on how much of this happens. Like I said, I'm 85% this happens. I'm 85% this happens, and I'm really closer to 100. I just don't like to say that because there's always something that can come out of left field and, and, and derail that. Okay? Um, but I'm not certain on the severity and the duration and the, the full scale. This could be very much limited to coasts and the cities that have done the worst. And then it will spread from there. But then how far? This isn't a virus. This is an economic trend. And they, they behave differently. In some ways, they behave the same as viruses. It's A lot of it's psychological. A lot of it's psychological. I think that the government has clearly demonstrated they'll print as much money as they need to to try to keep everything afloat. And I know a lot of you don't think that can work, but you just saw that it does. There's a That's a game that you can only play for so long. But I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of people who think, well, gee, if the, if, the, if the government debt gets to $30 trillion, we're sunk. Well, those are the same people that told you that, well, if we have $20 trillion of debt, we're sunk. Uh, and they, before that, they said if we have $15 trillion of government debt, we're sunk. And they said if we have $10 trillion, like, see, it's the, the, the same movie being played over and over again. As John said in his statement, the Federal Reserve can and will and does change the rules. What gives the value to the money is two things. There's People call our money fiat. It's not a pure fiat currency. It's a debt-backed currency by fiat. You have to understand both sides of it. So the fact that there's a, a, a borrower on the other end with an obligation to pay back a debt is the debt back portion of it. By fiat, it really isn't thou shall use this money the way people think of it is the government says this is how you pay your taxes. That's the component that is by fiat. Even if you have a gold back currency, you have a gold back dollar. If the government says thou must pay thy debt in federal you know, or federal reserve or U.S. notes denominated in dollars, they're still fiating that money for the purpose of interaction with the government. And therefore, it will become the default currency for the nation. It always has. It always will because that's how psychology works. So that's one piece that backs the money. 
The other piece that backs the money, and this is the one that can go haywire, is confidence by the consumer. Confidence in the person with the money in their hand. Confidence in the person that pays for services with the money. Confidence in the person that is paid with the money. You and I. And then those two things derive their value from the economy itself and the value of the goods and services because in the end, all money is, is a system of accounting. It's not real. Money's not even money. Well, gold is money. No, money's not money. If you were on Mars and you needed food and the next rocket ship was a long way off and I gave you gold, you wouldn't see any value in it at all. There's nothing you can do with it. Can't eat it. Doesn't it really increase in value? That's relative to the loss in value of other things. You can sit there and starve or have your oxygen run out and your gold won't do you no good. What's valuable to you is food, water, and oxygen if you're on Mars. And that's a good way to understand where real value comes from the economy. Just imagine you're on Mars. What would you want? What would you need? And you wouldn't want or need gold. If you plan on coming back to Earth, you might want gold. If you thought Mars was going to eventually be like Earth, you might want gold. But in the immediate need, it's, it's useless to you, as is money. You need things. You don't want money. You want things. The old saying is you don't want a drill bit. You want a hole. And we need to start thinking this way, and you need to start building wealth in your life. And if you want, if you want the opportunity to move, this could become the greatest opportunity because it could suppress real estate everywhere. And all I'm saying is, please don't bet the farm on this. But if you want to go anyway, and if going will make you happy, this might be a really good time to accelerate because it is potentially possible that you could sell, capture equity. Hold the equity in form of cash, wait for the market to come down further, and get a really good buying opportunity, and you should be taking your time to find the right place to buy anyway. On that note, if you want to sell, like I said, The 1% Effect by me and Dustin DeFriest is the book to get. It is the formula I use, and I promise you, the worse a market gets, the more, not less important it is. And again, it's three bucks. If you want it for your Kindle, just want to buy it. If you have Kindle Unlimited, it's free. It's the item of the day, and you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That, with that, I want to sign off with a little bit of a special sign-off to you today. Number one, I got a song for you in just a minute. It's kind of a Father's Day song for you fathers. Um, but I want to say something a little bit special as I get ready to walk away from you guys for almost three weeks. Happy Birthday Survival Podcast. Tomorrow, on Saturday the 20th, The Survival Podcast will be 12 years old. And I'm, when I say happy birthday, Survival Podcast, that's not to me. That's to y'all. That's to this community. And 12 years of just people not only being there for me, but being there for each other and doing amazing things in their life. This is my life's work. It really is. I, it, there is never a day that I think, well, I just should have stayed in corporate America. I could be, you know a lot better off financially than I am right now and be ready to retire to say why. I never think that. I never think I would be better off if I had. All I think is, thank God I did. This thing has given me so much and brought so much to my life because I've watched you guys help each other. And I want to say thank you to everybody that's ever supported me through these 12 years at any point in time. And I want to be a little bit of a dick, too, to all of you that at one point or another said, this is, the end, this is the end of TSP because you didn't like something I said or did. Go screw. Go screw. Longevity comes to those who have 
motivation, determination, and imagination. And I don't say that to gloat. I say that because I want it for you too. Those of you listening to me, whether it's been for a week, a month, a year, or all 12 years, I want you to have in your life the type of life that I have. But I want you to build it your way, on your terms, the way you want it, because you may not want it the way that I have it. But I want you to take that opportunity, and I want you to make the most of it. And to those of your dads, or soon will be dads, or one day will be dads, or like me, or grandparents, this song is amazing. This is by Darius Rucker. Darius Rucker, of course, was the lead singer of Hootie and the Blowfish. He's one of a lot of people out of pop and rock that made the migration to country. He's one that I think that was a good move, not just strategically, but I think that's where the man belonged the entire time. I mean, I remember back when Hootie was big time, right? And I remember hearing his voice and immediately thinking, that voice actually sounds like something that belongs to country music. This song is probably one of his best, and it definitely fits Father's Day. And if you're familiar with Darius's work, you probably know what song it is. It's called It Won't Be Like This For Long. And it's about how you know a father watches the kid grow up, and there's a lot of challenges along the way, and a lot of like, man, I, I'm ready for this to, to end, this period to end. You know, waking up in the middle of the night, changing diapers, all, I'm ready for this to end. But in the end, like, every step along the way when it's over you're going to feel like it didn't last long enough send them off to school they don't want to go but next thing you know they don't even have time for you because they're growing up and becoming individuals and that's great and that's wonderful that's your job your job as a parent is to work yourself out of a job it doesn't mean that it doesn't come with some regret and and missing some of these times you know, and right now I'm kind of going through phase two of this, right? Because I'm a grandfather and I have these kids in my home all the time, all day long. Well, I'm trying to work. That's why sometimes you hear me yelling in the background and stuff. And it wears on me. I'm not a patient man when it comes to noise. I don't like noise. But, uh, you know, I also think about it and realize how, how grateful I am that I get to watch my grandson and my granddaughter grow up because I know it won't be like this for long. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. He didn't have to wake up Even up all night Lying there in bed Listening to his newborn baby cry He makes a pot of coffee And splashes water on his face Wife gives him a kiss and says it's gonna be okay. It won't be like this for long. One day we'll look back laughing at the week we brought her home. This phase is gonna fly by. So baby, just hold on. It won't be like for long Four years later about 4.30 She's crawling in their bed And when he drops her off at preschool She's clanging to his leg The teacher peels her off for him He says what can I do She says now don't you worry this will only last a week or two 